When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 149, Clint Corley, Senior Enterprise Account Executive at the software company Kinexus. So my my favorite mistake, or I, I think we'll say the mistake that stuck with me uh, longer. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Clint and the company Kinexus, look for links in the show notes, or you can go to markraven.com slash mistake149. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and we're joined today. Our guest is Clint Corley. He is a senior enterprise account executive at Kinexus. And those of you who are watching on the YouTubes will notice we're, we've got somewhat matching logo wear, don't we, Clint? We do. We did not plan this, uh, but I'm happy that it happened. Yeah, well, we're thinking alike. Let's represent uh, the company that we are both um, happy to be affiliated with. Clint is a, a full-time sales executive. Me as a, I've been involved in different ways for a decade. Uh, part-time role, advisor, investor in the company. I like Kinexus a lot too. So just want to get that out on the table. And for those who are listening, <laughs> conflict of interest warning, it's all out on the table. Um, Kinexus is the company that was founded by one of our guests in a previous episode, Dr. Greg Jacobson. So uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I don't have the episode number right in front of me. That's that's just my most recent mistake. So we'll, <laughs> we'll figure that out. But Clint, as it says in his LinkedIn profile, and we'll see if he still agrees with this, he says he's master of the complex sales cycle. Yeah? That's that's what it says. Maybe that's a, uh, maybe that's a little uh, bullish of me. Bullish, uh, yeah. <laughs> Been practicing the complex sales cycle for many years. How about that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think Clint's good at his job, but we, you know, this is a podcast about mistakes. So we'll talk about sales mistakes and his favorite mistake and all sorts of things here today. But Clint and I know this to be true. He, he also says he's passionate about people, relationships, and problem solving. And he has a BBA degree in professional sales from Baylor University. So just a little bit about that real quickly. So within the business school, there's a whole degree specialization in in sales. Is that kind of unique or unusual for Baylor to have that? Yeah, so the, you're correct. There is a, a degree program within the Handcammer School of Business at Baylor University specifically for professional selling. It's a it's a pretty intensive program. At the time that I went through it, I believe there were less than 50 similar to it in in the world. I think that number has grown quite a bit. Uh, but it is designed specifically for people who are seeking to enter into a sales profession. You know, 50, 60, 70% of people who end up in sales professions kind of stumble into it. 
And, uh, you know, they end up being good at it because they were good at something else. This degree uh, certainly is a little bit different in that regard, but everything from uh, discovery and value proposition all the way to understanding supply chains and how you sell through a supply chain gets taught in that program. Really interesting, uh, really great program. A lot of much smarter people going through that program today than when I went through it. Initially. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's been good to see it grow. Uh, I'm still involved uh, as a, an advisory board member there. And uh, nice to um, nice to see that program become what it is. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, we think nothing of it. There are specializations in uh, marketing and finance and supply chain, and so it seems you know why not sales? That is a profession, and there's a lot to learn about it for sure. Yeah, I I tend to get a oh yeah that makes sense or a huh whenever uh, people <laughs> ask. It's usually one or the other. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know, maybe this was a moment in your career that also led to a huh kind of reaction. I don't know what your story, uh, my roundabout way of asking you to tell us your story, Clint, what is your favorite mistake? We'll either go wow or huh? We'll go wow. Yeah. I guess it'll depend on, on how well I describe it. I, um, so my, my favorite mistake, or I, I think we'll say the mistake that stuck with me, uh, longer and is a little bit more prominent in my memory. Uh, I was I was a young professional, maybe 23 or 24. I started my career in oil and gas in West Texas, Midland, Odessa. Have you ever been to Midland, Odessa? I have been to both. I've been. Okay. Uh, I've seen one of their football stadiums. They were quite proud to show me around when I was working there at one of the hospitals. They certainly is. There's oil, there's gas, and there's football out there, and that's that's <laughs> that tends to be about it. Um, yeah. Sorry for anyone living in Midland. Great place, wonderful people. I was out there working in oil and gas, and it was a boom town whenever I was out there. One of the uh, the companies that I worked for, we offered uh, backhoe services. And for anyone that doesn't know what a backhoe is, it's the tractor that's got that big arm on the back that reaches out and digs things. Um, it's a semi-specialized piece of equipment, but we offered those services uh, to our to our customers. What a lot of people don't know is that if you are going in the state of Texas, if you are going to dig deeper than 18 inches into the ground, you have to perform what is called an 811 dig test. 811 is a taxpayer funded services that notifies utilities who might have buried lines or buried cables underneath where you're going to dig so they can come mark them so that you don't hit them. Cable lines sewer lines, electricity lines, and for us, lines that are holding natural gas and petroleum, which are flammable and, and highly dangerous. If you're a homeowner and you're going to dig in your backyard, it's pretty easy. You go online, type in your address, you give a radius for where you're going to dig. People come out and say, oh, you're good. Way to go. You know, If you want to dig down to do some home renovation or if you're going to build a deck on your back porch, uh, that's all you got to do. It's a pretty difficult thing. To, to mess up. Um, one of my jobs at West Texas was to make sure that those dig tests got put in properly. We called them dig tests. The nature of our work was not residential works. We were not around houses. We were out in these remote locations on these oil and gas, caliche and dirt lease roads. And so requesting one of these was not as simple as putting an address in. What you had to do was find the nearest major intersection and give turn-by-turn cardinal directions down to the 10th of the mile to the exact place where you were going to dig 
and then provide a GPS coordinate to that exact place. A little bit more involvement there, uh, a lot more to, to go through. And uh, so the, the process essentially goes like this. We get a phone call from a customer. The customer says, I want to bury a new line at this place. And we drive out to that place, use the, use the odometer, tachometer. What's the one that measures mileage? Use the odometer, drive the, the dirt road up and down, use your GPS, mark the, uh, mark the area, send the request in. And then you start getting phone calls from everybody, AT&T, other oil and gas companies, kind of telling you what they have there. Once you've, once you've provided that information, they have 48 hours to respond. You have a 48-hour window to mark their lines, and then you're allowed, uh, you're allowed to dig. Usually, these jobs came up, I don't know, every couple weeks, maybe every two weeks, every three weeks. And then we had a couple that came in back-to-back where we were going to be doing a lot, a lot, a lot of digging. So there were about six to eight a day that we were calling in for about a three-week period. Well, you start doing something over and over again. You start to get better at it. The challenge is that you, you, can, you can run into a little bit of complacency uh, in, yeah. in doing those things, which ultimately, uh, spoiler alert, uh, became my mistake here. I, I got really, really good at doing them. I got to the point where I can knock out a, a ton of them in the morning and then kind of have whatever I wanted to do with the rest of my day. Um, there was one day where we had like eight or nine requests come in for a customer. I'm not going to name, uh, I'm not going to name the customer. They, uh, they, they requested from us and their plan was they were going to do all eight in one day. So they wanted to get all these done. We're going to knock all of them out in a single day. So I went and I just submitted all of those requests on the exact same day. I had all my directions and everything filled out. I had submitted everything in. And then the response from 811 is they usually send responses from email. Here's everything you submitted. This is confirmed. You're free to dig. This is confirmed. You're free to dig. This is confirmed. You're free to dig. And they all look pretty similar. Mm-hmm. But I and did not. You, and do you have to track? If you've got multiple requests for something, you have to piece it together? That's correct. So they come in and then you piece those together. And then your responsibility is to hand that confirmation to whoever's actually operating the piece of equipment. They hand it to the customer. They verify that everything is good, and then you're allowed to dig. But what I did not see was that one of those requests that I had submitted had been denied. Uh, I had put incorrect driving directions in. I marked something as uh, three miles north down a certain road that should have been 0.3 miles. It was just a little fat finger mistake. And that request got denied. Um, And I did not see that come through. Everything looked the same. Hey, I know I didn't screw these up, blah, blah, blah. Did not have anybody check my work as it was coming back in. And I sent equipment out into the field ready to dig for a test that had been denied. Now, when I say denied, what I don't mean is that, oh, there's danger. What I mean is that no one has been alerted that you're about to go do this and no one is checking that area. So to to make a really long story a little bit shorter, we sent somebody out in the field. They started to dig. Uh, they dug and they hit. Uh, they hit a oil and gas line. Uh, good news is it was an abandoned line that hadn't been used in a, in about a decade. 
It was also a water line that only would have had water running through it. But they hit that line. They stopped the job as they should. They call their safety coordinator. We call our safety coordinator. They go out to look. We have all of our documentation in a row. And of course, we hand our documentation to the customer. Customer looks at the document and says, oh, no, this one has been denied and this area has not been checked. Right, which obviously fault there then lies on on us and and ultimately on me. Um, What they ended up, what the customer ended up doing was classifying that incident as what they call a SIF incident. It's the potential for a it's the potential for a serious catastrophic incident or fatality. P S C I S. It's a rare acronym with a silent letter in it, right? With silent SIF? P. You know this S I F F. What is the you know what's the, anyway? Yeah. So yeah. they put the silent P in there. Um, so anyway, they because they classified it that way, they had a certain protocol and procedure that they had to go through to get to root cause analysis. And part of that was meeting with their corporate HSE people and going through our process for exactly what we did and exactly how we missed what we missed. And then ultimately, you know, what are we going to do to, to correct that? Um, I, I think, you know, th- there was a lot of mistakes that happened in there. I think there was a complacency mistake. There was certainly a process mistake. There was certainly the mistake of, of not having people check our work. Was that normally the process to have those double checks and you had gotten away from that? Or was that not the process? Did they just expect you, hey, don't make mistakes? Yeah, the process was for whoever. So ultimately, the people that are out on the job doing the work are, are responsible for the safety of that work. And, and I think that because the, the job was, um, it wasn't a rush job, but we wanted to knock it all out in one day. So we got started really early that day. And we had a sense of urgency about us. And so there was not a double check, which was our process. There's always a double check of that of that test and what it was. And we didn't do that. Um, there should have been more representation from everybody that was out there on the site uh, to double check those things again. Um, we definitely should have had a more formalized process for how we document uh, the way that we actually got our driving directions and the way that we got our, you know, GPS coordinates and those types of things. I think, you know, on a, on a personal level, right. There's a, there's a, there's a, there was a bit of a complacency issue there. I got really good at it. I was really good. I knew what I was doing. I didn't need to check my own work or I didn't need to have somebody else check it. Um, you know, I, I think what I learned more than anything is that when you when you make that kind of mistake, there's no real running from it. You know, there's not really anything you can do on that front. There's certainly no hiding it at that point in time. I mean, it had happened. Customer was there. Everybody was there. Everybody understood what was going on. Um, but I think more of anything, what I learned is, is that the way that you react to a mistake is really what's important about it. I think we did a really good job of stopping the work and making sure we were doing the work in a safe way. We also did a really good job of immediately kind of opening up everything that we did both internally and with the customer and identifying a better process and a better way to do that. And then I learned that, you know, people are, man, people are gracious. They really are. Um, and, and our customer was certainly gracious with us in that, in that regard, that was something that could have killed a contract. Um, something that could have cost a lot of people a livelihood and, and income and those types of things. And, um, you know, we were fortunate enough where we were willing to show that we made a mistake. We we're owning that mistake. We're not hiding from that mistake and that we're actually doing something about it. 
when you say it could have killed the contract, you didn't say or could have. At first, I thought you were going to say contractor. Like if it was an electric line, like is that a mistake that could have been really harmful or, or fatal to somebody, or would have damaged the business contract and relationship, or both? It 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 could have damaged a person. It could have hurt somebody physically. What it what it probably should have done is damage a business relationship and end a business relationship, right? I mean, there's just certain things. You know, it's not like people aren't aren't. It's not that you can't get past a mistake or give somebody an opportunity to own up to a mistake. Although there is a, you know, there is this part of it that you have to look at those mistakes and say, okay, is this something that could happen again in the future? And do I think that allowing this person to continue to work with this could be harmful to a person? Um, so, you know, I, I think both in that sense or in that regard, I think we were fortunate that nobody got hurt. And I think we were fortunate that, um, that, a, that a business didn't get hurt. Although that's yeah. the secondary priority, obviously. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like you were in an environment that was focused on learning from the mistake. Like, it doesn't sound like there, it sounds like you felt bad enough. There weren't great consequences in the short term. You didn't get fired for this. They were willing to, <laughs> to help you work, work through the improvement. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for that. Right. I mean, there's certainly this thing where it wasn't like, okay, our, you know, our response is that, in order to make sure this doesn't happen again, we're going to terminate employment. Our response was in order to make sure this doesn't happen again, we're going to put a process in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which again, right. I was certainly very grateful for because uh, mm-hmm. that could have ended in a different way. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that story, you know, it's, it's clear it's stuck with you um, over this time. I mean, are, are, are there applications for the lessons learned in the work that you do now, like looking at sales as a process, is there a risk of complacency or sloppiness or, you know, being good at something, doing something a lot, and then, oops, I mean, do, do you, are you on guard for that? Or how, how do you? Yeah, that? yeah, that, that's a great question. There's certainly a risk for complacency in, in, in my day-to-day and what I do. And I, I think that goes, I think it goes a couple of ways though. You know, there's a risk of complacency and not preparing for a call and then having a bad outcome for the call be a customer doesn't want to sign on with us, or, you know, we're unable to generate revenue from that person. It's bad for the business. It's a personal consequence because it's part of my job and I want to be good at my job and I want to be good at what I do. The other piece of that though is, 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 The last thing you ever want to do to a customer is oversell or overpromise, and then certainly the last thing you want to do is is say that you can do something that you can't do. Um, in in the the world that that Kinexus works in, and our product and the solution that we provide and the services that we go with with it uh, can can be complex. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of configuration that needs to be done. There's a lot of different ways that people can use our platform and use our services. There's different uh, levels that people can use it at. You can use it on a small scale. You can use it on a large scale. And so there's a lot that has to go into it to make sure that by the time that someone says, yes, we agree that this is a good relationship to enter into, that it actually is. And that we all understand what the expectations are of one another um, because poorly defined expectations and statement of work just um, creates poor results for everybody. And so I think that I've taken a lot of those lessons. I've tried to be a serial note taker. I've tried to double check and triple check my own work. I've certainly learned that 
sending my work to other people is not a burden to them. It's a help for everybody. Um, and so I, I try to take those things and apply them here. Look, I still make mistakes, make them every day. And, um, you know, again, that's where you rely on people just being gracious towards you. Yeah. Um, when I think of, you know, sales and particularly software sales, like software is so ephemeral, if that's the right word, like it's constantly changing. There's a lot you can do with software, um, where, you know, it's not like with, uh, say a backhoe or certain products with the laws of physics maybe kick in <laughs> more often. Right. So I think of, you know, 20 years ago, I worked for uh, a different Austin based startup software company. And I remember there was often tension where we had sales executives and then I was in a role for a while, primarily as a, uh, like a sales engineer who mm-hmm. I was doing the more technical setup on demos. And, you know, it was a little bit more of an interface between um, sales and development. And remember there being these times of like conflict of like me thinking I'm, you know, kind of trying to speak truth to power. Who was the sales executive? Like, well, you said the customer asked, can the software do this? And you said, yes. And I think the answer to that's really no, like that that's part <laughs> of the tension around what you describe as overselling or finding the balance of like, well, can it do it? Well, like, well, maybe not today, but our development team's real good. And like I, I mean, what? How, how do you navigate that, um, and, and make sure you're not overselling in a way that, um, you know, we, we don't want an unhappy customer of like, well, we signed the contract because of this, and you now the customer's mad at you. Potentially, the dev team is mad at you. How, how do you find the right balance there? Yeah, it's it's tough, right? Because at the end of the day, a, a sales executive or a salesperson's job is to generate revenue for the organization, it's value that they that they bring to the organization, um, and at least that's how their job performance is measured. I should say uh, there is there's a lot there, right? Because there's oh, you know, can a product do something? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the right question to ask is: Should our product be doing that thing? Should it be applied in that way? Um, there is certainly a sense of, Hey, you know, this customer is asking for a feature and I'm pretty sure it's coming out in the next 30 days. And, you know, I'm pretty sure they're not going to get, get signed on in the next 30 days. So do we really need to have that conversation right now? I mean, the short answer is yes, you absolutely should. I like, uh, I like the Ted Lasso quote here. Be curious. I'd be curious, not judgmental. Why is a great question. Uh, sure, I think we can do that. Why do you ask? What's important about that? What are you really trying to accomplish there? And then I think at the end of the day, if the answer is no to something, the answer has got to be no to to that thing. No, we can't do it. Hey, the, the truthful answer is no, we can't. The truthful answer is that if we were going to, it would probably take about this period of time, but even I can't guarantee you that. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you can look back at whatever you did and you can uh, you can say, hey, I was honest and I was forthright and it either worked out or it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I'm just kind yeah. of ranting there a little bit. No, no. I mean, it's it, it's it's a com- it's a complex thing uh, situation to, to navigate this balance of, well, you know, if the customer is if it's a big enough customer and they're paying enough that could fund the development of that feature. And, but then you're trying to balance like, well, is that a feature other customers would want, or is that a customization? You know, those, those are, there's a lot of things to weigh there. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a big piece of it. And, you know, I think the other part of it too is, is um, trying to, trying to figure out what 
trying to place the priority of the customer first, the priority of the of of your business second, and then your priority third or your priority last can be a really difficult thing to do. At least in what I do now, right? My 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 priorities have to be the priorities of the customer first. They have to be the priorities of the Kinexus business second. Everyone else's can come third, and then I can worry about my own. And it's hard. It's hard to do that. Um, it's it's you got to gut check yourself, and you gotta you gotta keep yourself honest towards that. And that seems like there might be maybe a different use of the, 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 the word overselling, thinking about like being persistent. Like how much do you contact somebody initially? Sure. How much and how often do you follow up when they've said, yes, we are going to sign a contract and then they, they ghost you for a little while? Like how do you find the balance between persistence and, and being a pest? Yeah, uh, it's an art, not a science. Yeah, certainly. Uh, although I, I, I do appreciate um, I do appreciate being sent uh, really bad prospecting emails. Uh, I always get I, a kick out of those. I, I send those to Clint. That's the thing I pester him with occasionally. <laughs> Goodness knows I've sent a couple. I'm sure somebody's going to listen to this podcast that goes, yeah, yeah, I got a couple of those from old Clint in the past. Um, man, it's it's an art, not a science. And it's a balancing act for sure. Um, I, I will tell you. As, as weird as it, as it may sound, the absolute best thing that you can do uh, when somebody says yes or when somebody maybe is, is a little not getting back to you, you got to look back at the last piece of, of contact you have with them or the last conversation. There's not really a lot you can do to, to make somebody get back on the phone with you if they don't want to other than say, hey, I don't want to waste your time. Let's catch up. 30 days from now for five minutes, let's put it on the calendar right now. And as, as weird of maybe like a sales tactic as that may sound, it's really a respectful thing to do for everybody. Um, what the balance is between persistence and being a pest, I, your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I guess is the honest answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I do get a lot of, um, just, just uh, cold emails, outbound emails from people. And, you know, the, the, the ones that I most often call a bad sales email of the day are things that clearly aren't at all customized to me other than maybe inserting my name <laughs> and, you know, stuff that's just totally irrelevant off the mark and I'll hit delete. And then this is where I think it becomes past. You get the, oh, just following up email. And, you know, and then, you know, worst off would be like the third strike, you know, like you mm-hmm. know, type email. And I mean, maybe a lot of this is automated and unfortunately then there's not a great cost to people doing it. But I think sometimes that automation either just, it's a waste of time or maybe it runs the risk of, even if it was something relevant to me, maybe it's off putting in a way that, that damages that potential relationship instead of me just hitting delete or hitting spam, or as I've learned to do block sender. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, there's, there's too much of that. And then there's the bad, I, I don't have one handy. Um, then there's some emails that are just weird, like just like oddly aggressive or like they include a picture from your social media. Oh, here, here's the one that's coming to mind. So like, you know, they included a picture from my social media and the, uh, something to effective, like, Oh, you might think I'm stalking you. And I'm like, why would you ever <laughs> go there? Like, that's not really something to joke about to anybody who's really faced that, not me, yeah. but I just, like, yeah. I, 
there's these weird tactics sometimes. And I, you know, it's, somebody, somebody either came up with the idea or was told, Hey, this is a good idea. Go try it. Yeah. Go, go give it a shot. It's the, uh, it's a little bit of a spray and pray tactic would be the automated side, right? Hey, let me load these email addresses into this machine. And then this machine will make it look like this email actually came from a person and not a marketing engine. And then maybe if I send out a thousand, I'll get five people that want to meet with me. Um, look, I, guilty, right? At least early in my career. Um, certainly guilty as charged there. And then there's just this weird, I don't know, it's a desire to, to be different in a prospecting email that sometimes, yeah, maybe you take it a little bit too far. Or you take it in the wrong direction. Or even, you know, on your follow-up email, hey, did you get my first one? Look, chances are they got it right? Chances are they got your first one. You don't need to ask them if they got it. If you got a second message you want to send, great. Send that follow-up message. No need to, you know, oh, you must have missed this one. Oh, I know that you're busy. Yeah, we're all busy. I get it. Just bring this back to the top of your inbox. Why? I didn't want it there. Yeah. Or just the, uh, just the, uh, 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 the one word email that says bump, just make sure that it gets right. Yeah, because to your point, yeah, if the, if, the, if the second, did you get my email message is going to get through, very likely the first one did. And if not, the follow-up's not going to get through, but uh, automation. So it, it's probably, we, we don't expect AI to steal everybody's sales job in the near term. Yeah, I don't, I don't think not in the near term. Maybe uh, steal somebody, uh, steal a prospecting job. Everybody gets robocalls and, hey, man, they're getting pretty good. Uh, they're getting really good and they sound like people. Some of them are capable of having two or three phrase or sentence conversations with you as, as we get going. Um, hopefully not because hopefully the way that the profession of sales is going is one that helps customers and helps people understand the value of what problem they're trying to solve or the value of what their aspiration is for the business and trying to figure out my my VP would my CRO would call it disqualifying first trying to figure out who you can't help and trying to arrive at that conclusion as fast as humanly possible and then as a as a, a representative who's supposed to be a professional sales representative being willing to say hey I cannot help you here are the reasons why I cannot help you here's the the direction that I suggest that you go right i, I think that the way that information is readily available in today's day and age, I think that the way that the number of SaaS products that are available in the market today, um, people are going to be looking for solutions. And I think that the, uh, the, the sales professionals that are going to do well for themselves and that are going to do well for their customers are the ones that, that can help can help map a, a business value to a, to a product and are willing to walk away whenever it's not the right fit. Cause it's the right thing for the customer to do. So we shall see AI may replace us all one day. I don't know. I don't... Right. Maybe even as podcast hosts, not that that's, a, <laughs> that's not a lucrative job that AI, AI would be smart enough to not steal that job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, we don't want that one. Um, so maybe one other question for you, you know, you think about, you mentioned earlier how a lot of people stumble into sales. Um, what would your high level advice be to somebody who says, hey, Clint, I, I, my company's asked me to go into a sales role. I've been 
a technical person or a domain expert, and now they want me to go do sales, like how how to learn, what to read. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, wow. Really good question. Um, before you decide that you're going to go try to sell anything to anybody, um, make sure that you agree that what you're selling is actually helpful for people. I think that would be my first piece of advice. Uh, you'll, you'll have to decide what your definition of helpful versus not helpful is, but, but make sure that it's something that actually provides value to an individual, to a business um, or otherwise. I think that would be my, my first piece of advice there. My second would be um, go find people in your network, go on LinkedIn who are in the sales profession and go talk to them about it and ask them if they like it, ask them what they do, ask them what they love about their job, ask them what they hate about their job. Um, and then the third is, is I would say, make sure you know your motivation for, for going into it and make sure that you find a company that, um, that incentivizes you as a sales professional in a way that, that actually gives you some fulfillment. Um, you know, if you're going into it to go make a bunch of money, it's okay. Um, make sure you know that that's your motivation and make sure you're picking somebody that's willing to do that for you. If your motivation is to, to be helpful and be a problem solver, if your motivation is to um, lead the future of AI in healthcare, right? Make sure you go find a company that's going to go do that. As far as what to read goes, oh man, there's a ton of sales books you can go read. Um, I was trained in spin whenever I was at uh, Baylor. I've read uh, both solution and new solution selling. I'd go take a gander at those. Uh, the Challenger sale wasn't my favorite, but go read it anyway. Uh, we're reading a book right now called The Qualified Sales Leader. I would check that book out as well. And then I tell you, my my professor in, in college, she runs the uh, the Center for Professional Selling today. She gave me a book uh, that was a parable called The Go-Giver. Um, and it's, it's a counterbalance to the concept of a go-getter. And... Um, I would recommend reading that because it's a really good way to understand um, a very positive mentality around the sales profession that you could, that you could put towards yourself. Well, thanks. Um, So uh, again, our our guest today has been Clint Corley from Kinexus. So before we wrap up, just two questions related to Kinexus. Um, For one, you know, you mentioned earlier SAS, there's no silent P in that acronym, (laughs) but there is, there's a hidden S. So software as a service, S-A-A-S. Um, let's say you're on an elevator with someone who says, hey, Clint, that's a sharp looking polo shirt. Uh, what, <laughs> what is Kinexus? Who do you work for? What's your elevator speech about the company? Oh, man, I appreciate you teeing me up for this question. Um, we are a software company at our core, and we are on a mission to help people spread continuous improvement. We help our customers do two things. We help them collaborate together on problem solving, and we help them report those results to the broader business. That's what we're helping people do. If you're having a problem with one of those two things, you ought to give us a ring. And people can learn more about the company at kinexus.com. I'll put a link in the show notes, K-A-I-N-E-X-U-S.com. Now, the final question, you know, thinking about the company and how we operate as the company has grown. Um, You know, from, from the early days, and I think one thing that Greg and Matt, 
we're very intentional about as co-founders and I tried to support in different ways is creating a culture where there was this um, healthy notion of learning from mistakes, not blaming and punishing people for a simple human error or for discovering uh, a problem that we didn't even know was possible. Um, I, you know, so it's, it's a leading question, but I'm curious like, if you have reflections or even a story um, you know, as we wrap things up here, talking about that culture within Kinexus of learning from mistakes instead of um, you know, focusing on blame and retribution, if you will. Sure, sure. I, uh, I'll tell on my CEO here a little bit. I had a, a meeting with Greg uh, a couple weeks ago. It's been a couple weeks ago now. And uh, to me, I think this is very telling. We were talking about sales and kind of the future of it and where we're going to go with Kinexus and how we're going to grow our business and, and those types of things. And, and to be in a meeting with your CEO and have him say, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Clint, I don't care whether or not we sell something or not. I care that we learn and I care that we get better. Um, I think we've done a good job of, of creating that. There have certainly been mistakes made uh, this year. There were mistakes made last week. I'll probably look back on today and figure out that there was a couple that were made today. Um, but I think that we do a good job of blaming process, not people. I think that we've done a good job of creating trust between um, managers and subordinates in our organization. And, and I think that we are in a, are in a real interesting and precarious uh, position. And let me, let me find my words here. I think that we have created an organization where finding problems and identifying problems is such a good thing that you want to be the first person to point your own out because asking for help is a sign of strength and not a sign of weakness. I think we've done a good job of that. Um, and the, uh, the meeting that I had with Greg a couple of weeks ago, I, I think is a good example of, uh, yeah. Of that. yeah, he's trying to do, you know, he's very, uh, mission based and principles driven and yeah, he does care about the company and the growth, but it's not selling at all costs. I think that's, that's clear and that's fair to say. Yeah. Your words much more elegant than mine. were. <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, I don't think Greg would mind you, uh, talking about that because that is, you know, I think the culture of the company, I make mistakes. And, you know, like, like you said, um, you know, and, and, and somebody like I've, I've been in workplaces, final comment I'll make early in my career where, Oh my God, people would jump all over to you for making a mistake. And that's so dysfunctional. And sometimes I still have wounds from that, but I've gotten much better when I realize I'm in an environment where, yeah, I can safely disclose you know what? I made a mistake. And then the focus is on, well, how did that happen? And what do we do to prevent it from happening again? That's, that's better for the company. And I think it's better for the people working in it. Sure. Totally agree. So that's what my favorite mistake is all about that, that concept and that mindset. So um, Clint, thank you for sharing your favorite mistake story, what you learned from it and um, how you've brought that forward into sales. So again, our guest has been Clint Corley, Senior Enterprise Account Executive at Kinexus. Clint, thanks a lot. Thanks, Mark.
Well, thanks again to my friend and colleague, Clint Corley, for being a, a fun guest today. To learn more about Kinexus, the software company, or to connect with Clint on social media, you can look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake149. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.